We'll be looking at our second parable in this short two-week series on parables of the kingdom from Mark chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 30 through 34. It's also printed on pages 5 and 6 in the bulletin. Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 34. And he, that is Jesus, said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. You may be seated. And as you do, let's go together to the Lord, seeking to his help as we come to his word. God, we thank you for the reality as we looked last week and as we're reminded again this week that your kingdom is here. And God, it is growing even when we can't see it. Even in its smallest fashions, as we heard this morning earlier, you use the small and the weak and the low to despise the shame and the strong. So God, may we be encouraged by the reality that your kingdom is coming and that it will get here and it will be glorious, it will be great, and it will be a blessing to all who enter into it. We pray that you would be glorified in the preaching and the hearing of your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I have no idea if it is the most popular or even the most well-read, but I'm confident that everyone here knows who Clifford the Big Red Dog is. The book, along with its famous character, was introduced in 1963. And for those of you who do not remember that first book, maybe your kids are too old or you just have a short memory, it starts with Clifford as a puppy. He is the runt of a litter of five puppies. He has two brothers and two sisters. And when the little girl, Emily Elizabeth, comes, she sees the puppies and she chooses Clifford from that litter. But she's encouraged in that moment to pick another puppy because Clifford is the runt. And she's even warned that if he survives, he will be weak and sick for the rest of his life if he survives. There's little hope, it seems, for poor little Clifford the puppy. But to her character and her credit, Emily Elizabeth still chooses Clifford as her own. She takes him home. She cares for him. She feeds him. She walks him. She does all the things that a little, little girl should do when caring for a dog. And the result is in the title. Clifford very quickly and very surprisingly grows into a big red dog. How big? While the books, they don't have a uniform bigness. One book he'll look bigger. One book he'll look smaller. But I did a little research, and the consensus of his measurements is from the height of his, top of his head to his paw is 25 feet. That is a very big dog. He is accurately described as a big red dog. And with his bigness, if you've read any of the other books, I haven't read all of them. There's something like 40 to 60, I forgot what the count was. He does what any normal-sized dog can only dream of doing. I'm pretty sure he helps the fire department rescue cats or something like that. And considering, though, that his beginnings was tiny, even pessimistic, his growth into a big red dog is both impressive and surprising. As we come now to this second parable in our two-week parable series, 
Jesus provides another picture for us, for his disciples, of the growth of the kingdom, of the kingdom itself. And at the risk of sounding almost sacrilegious or a little too comical, the kingdom experiences a Clifford-like trajectory from weakness to greatness, from insignificance to magnificence. What may initially appear to our human consideration, to our human understanding, as something that is small, insignificant, easily to just push past, will not be so come the end. The kingdom will reap glory and honor. And Jesus teaches this using what would have been a very familiar picture of the mustard seed. And in this parable, we see that the kingdom's initial weakness will yield undeniable greatness. That's the kingdom's initial weakness will yield undeniable greatness. This parable, like last week, is a parable, another parable of comparison. It is like last week's, where it's emphasizing a growing seed, but the emphasis is different. Yes, growth is assumed. Yes, growth is often unseen, mysterious, as we heard last week. But the growth itself is not the emphasis of this parable. It's the contrast between what the seed was at the beginning and what the seed will be in its end. That which was once small, seemingly insignificant, is going to produce something large and remarkable. What was sown nearly invisible to the naked eye will reap a harvest no one will be able to deny. Its greatness will be evident, seen by all. The outline for you this morning is there in the bulletin, two points, focusing on this parable of the mustard seed, just in verses 30 through 32. They are a simple start and an extraordinary end. We're not going to look too much at the last couple verses of 33 and 34. While they are important, I don't want to in any way suggest they're not. They more serve as, as an overwhelming conclusion to all that's been said in verses 1 through 32. It, it, it's emphasizing that the method of Jesus' teaching was parables. Not only the ones that we have here, but also, also the ones throughout the Gospels. And the parables should be enough to encourage us to wait for, to look for, to even pray for the kingdom to come. But for the parable of the mustard seed, we start with Jesus, where he starts with a simple start. Like the mustard seed, the kingdom's beginning is rather unimpressive. Jesus asks this question at the beginning, with what shall we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? This strategy is a double question. It's common in Judaism, especially amongst the rabbis, as they launch into a teaching to ask this twofold question. It was meant to capture the attention of the audience, to heighten expectations. You can almost picture the people as Jesus asks it, leaning in just a little bit more. What is he going to say? What is it like? And you can almost picture the people coming up with ideas in their head. Their minds being flooded with potential pictures of what the kingdom of heaven would be like. And I would bet in their minds what they see is things that are great and powerful. Things that are mighty. Things that are flashy. 
And so Jesus' response would shake them up a little bit, if not confuse them altogether, when he says, it is like a grain of mustard. You can almost envision one of them, maybe the disciples, kind of pausing and, and saying, Master, did we hear you right? It sounded like you said mustard seed. And maybe Jesus, with, it, with a smile on his face, knowing that how this is landing, is ready then to, to jump into the discussion. And the first emphasis with a mustard seed is on its smallness. He says, a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Now, even if you're not a gardener, you likely have some idea of how small a mustard seed is. Whole grain mustard is carried in most grocery stores, like Kroger. The mustard is not only tasty, but it's visually appearing if you see it. It has those black, those white, those yellow, those brown seeds all together in that, that beautiful container. I love whole grain mustard. But those mustard seeds are also very tiny, very small. They can easily get stuck in your teeth, leaving you longing for floss. I know by experience. But for those of you who that visual isn't enough and you're more scientific, Tim, that's you, a mustard seed is about one to two millimeters in diameter. It takes nearly 750 of them to make up one ounce. That's a lot for a very small measurement. So to put it bluntly, a mustard seed is very, very small. Now, it's not the smallest seed that we know of. Some of you, maybe this is Alan's department, know that a wild orchid seed is even smaller. But as we will see, Jesus isn't giving us a lesson in gardening. He's not giving us a le lesson in plant life. He chooses the mustard seed for a very specific purpose. Because it would give a concrete demonstration that what starts small will not end small. But we're not there yet. The second emphasis in the mustard seed is also its insignificance. Nobody ultimately pays attention to a mustard seed, especially when it gets sowed. No one goes looking for it. No one wonders whether or not they might be trampling it under their feet as they go from one place to the next. No, the mustard seed was so common that it was hardly treated as anything special or significant. After it was sown, it was pretty much altogether forgotten. There was nothing spectacular about it, nothing to draw one's interest or to lead them boasting in, hey, guess what? I got a lot of mustard seeds. For a present-day analogy, it's like my response. This is where I may not be as good of a father as I should be. When my girls come running to show me an acorn, they're impressed. Dad, look at this acorn. Isn't it cool? Isn't it awesome? And I'm sure it's an acorn. They're everywhere in my yard. I only pay attention to them when they start to sprout and grow, and i got to pull them out before it becomes a small tree. Truth is, if my daughter didn't come running to me showing my acorn, I would never have thought twice about an acorn. And so this is how Jesus' audience would have understood a mustard seed. It's a mustard seed. They only knew about mustard seeds when it came to the harvest, because that was the only time they mattered. The beginning of its journey towards maturity was no big deal. There's nothing to see, nothing to write home about. And so hopefully you can see then why this makes such a perfect analogy when Jesus is teaching about the kingdom. 
It did not start with displays of power and triumph and glory. It did not begin with glory in a small seed form only to be added until it became this wonderful, evident, coming kingdom. No, it began small and insignificant like that mustard seed. It began with Jesus himself, a 30-year-old carpenter living in an obscure town of Nazareth, who his own disciples asked, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's not exactly a ringing endorsement for the town of Nazareth. And from there, that kingdom would be embodied by Jesus, who would live and suffer and die like a criminal on a cross. Nothing in there screams of power and of glory. Yes, he would rise from the dead, and yes, he would ascend into heaven and seated, and is still seated at the Father's right hand. But the work of that kingdom that he inaugurated would be left in the hands of those 11 uneducated, weak, and often doubting men, as well as the other women and men who would come alongside. By human standards, the beginning of the kingdom was modest at best, and definitely small and insignificant. In fact, as our call to worship, which Tim read for us earlier, it described it as foolish, weak, low, despised. Or as we heard from Ezekiel 17, it was that sprig ripped off and planted on top of the mountain. And so as we consider how do we apply the beginning of this parable, the words of the prophet Zechariah come to mind. When he rebuked those in Israel who were guilty of what he said was despising the day of small things. We, especially as Western Christians, are, also, are often guilty of buying into that mantra that bigger is better. We think our churches, our ministries, and the like, they must be large, they must be significant, they must be triumphant, they must be glorious. And if they're not, we despair. We start throwing all of our time and our energy into making them bigger and better and more wonderful. We overlook those small signs of growth because we're consumed with our culture with the big and the flashy. I believe it's helpful for us to look to our brothers and sisters outside of the West for encouragement and even a little bit of reorientation. Because for them, kingdom growth looks small, hidden, even insignificant. It looks often like weakness, but we know in the end that's not how it will stay. Now, please do not hear me wrong. I am not saying that big equals bad and small equals good. But neither am I saying that, that to have a vision for something big or to pray that God would do big things, even to expect that God would do big things, is wrong. But I am challenging us in the way that we measure success, the way we measure kingdom growth. Because too often we, we measure it by the human barometer of size or significance. And this also applies to us on a personal level. We want big, flashy, triumphant growth. We want that immediate change or that, that very big, powerful experience. But the mustard seed encourages us not to devalue the small, simple workings of the Holy Spirit to make you and I more like Christ. Or the small, simple workings of his spirit to help us press on faithfully as his servants of the kingdom. 
in our speech, in our conduct. Or in what Paul would tell Timothy, our peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The kingdom began as a mustard seed. And God continues to work in that seed through small, smallness and weakness and insignificance. He even delights in using such things for his glory. So let us not despise the small things, but to press on in faithfulness. Be encouraged in the advance of his kingdom, even when it seems like it only happens in small, insignificant, mysterious, and hidden ways. The parable then moves, though, from the simple start to, to the big emphasis, which is the extraordinary end. Like that mustard seed, the kingdom's con consummation will reap greatness. Whereas the parable of the seed in verses 26 and 29 describes that process, the mustard seed assumes the process. It's, it's not concerned about how the mustard seed goes from a seed to a, a small plant and grows bigger and bigger. It assumes it's going to get to the end. The emphasis, as we, we heard in the beginning, is on the final product. And the contrast between the seed that started and the tree that ends is even more striking than that fictional runt puppy who grows to be a 25-foot dog. Jesus says, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. And the first thing that should jump out on us is the bigness of this plant. And here we see why Jesus picked the mustard seed and not the apple seed or some other seed. Because the people were familiar with the mustard seed, they would also have been familiar with the mustard plant. A plant that would easily be mistaken for a tree. No, the mustard seed would not come, become something entirely different. It wouldn't start a mustard seed and then become something like, I don't know, a giant red sequoia. While certainly that would be a striking contrast, the emphasis would be missed. What is sown mustard remains mustard. It's still a garden plant, but it doesn't look like any of the other garden plants. Mustard plants still grow in Palestine. I forgot to ask Tim this week if he saw them in his trips to Israel a few years ago, but I'm told they're everywhere. These plants, both then and now, grow up to 10 to 15 feet tall. Large leaves also form at its base, and every fall, its branches actually become more rigid and strong, almost tree-like. So to the untrained eye, which would be mine, you would see the mustard plant and you would think, that's a tree. That's a good-looking tree. And before we're tempted to think, yeah, but a 10 to 15-foot tree is not that big of a deal, when was the last time your garden grew a 10 to 15-foot tree? My raging out-of-control tomato plants never got close to 10 to 15 feet. My basil plant, which started to get a little bit of those rigid branches, I never found a bird nesting in my basil tree or my basil plant. The end product or the consummation of Christ's kingdom would not simply be one other kingdom or one other plant in the garden. It would be the kingdom over all the kingdoms. 
it would stand out. It would stick out. It would not be missed. It would be the biggest. It will be the greatest. It will be the, it will be the most glorious. The incredible growth of that mustard plant from tiny seed to massive tree plants is the proof. You're not sure if the kingdom will be great. Look at the mustard plant. But it's not only the bigness that stands out. It's also the blessing. Jesus goes on. It puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, if you look at this passage, this, this little section here has caused scholars to go a whole bunch of different places. Some think the inclusion of the birds is Jesus' hidden way of saying the Gentiles are included. That's a fair point. It's taught elsewhere in Scripture, but I don't think that's where Jesus is, is driving here. Others think that Jesus is teaching universalism because he says all the birds of the air, so that means all people everywhere. It doesn't really matter. That's definitely wrong. It's overreading. It's refuted elsewhere in Scripture, and it's certainly not the emphasis Jesus is driving at. No, what Jesus is driving at is he's using the picture of birds nesting and finding shelter and shade in this mustard plant to the nesting and the shelter and the shade that is to be found in his kingdom. In the case of the mustard plant, the birds would come for the food and the shelter. Those small and insignificant seeds would be a big draw for the birds. They would see them starting to sprout and they would come flocking. They would come for an abundant feast on these innumerable tiny seeds. They would be able to fill to their hearts and their bellies desire. Birds in a mustard plant don't go hungry. But they would be also be drawn to these massive leaves at the trunk. They would be able to shield them from the scorching sun as well as the torrential rains. Birds in a mustard plant have a safe place to hide. And for those of us who enter the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, that same nourishment, that same shelter is found to an infinitely greater scale. Here there's living water to quench the thirstiest of souls. Here there's the bread of life given to the hungry and the weary. Here there is shelter to be found first from the wrath of God against our sin. And then second, from the sin and the horrors that come with the earthly kingdoms that we must live under. In the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we find the incredible blessing of having a place to feast and a place to hide. It's the picture he's painting of these birds flocking to this tree. In a way, this this parable contains a a subtle point, a subtle nod to actually Daniel chapter 4. Specifically, that dream that was given to King Nebuchadnezzar. It was a dream given by God. If you remember, this is what the dream was. Behold, I saw a a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. And the birds of heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Here we have a picture of a tree in in the middle of the earth. And it's bringing blessing to those who are seeking refuge in it. There's life found. There's flourishing. But do you remember what happens to that tree? 
What happened to that great and awesome tree that everyone's benefiting from? A voice from heaven said this, chop it down, lop off its branches, strip its leaves, scatter its fruits, let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Because no matter how great and awesome this tree appeared, it would not last because only one tree, only one kingdom is the greatest, the source of all blessing for the entire earth. Nebuchadnezzar would learn in dramatic fashion that the kingdom to hide in, the kingdom to find shade in, wasn't his own, but it was the kingdom of God. And that kingdom would one day cover the earth. And in this parable, Jesus is declaring that kingdom has arrived, and the day is coming when it will be fulfilled. As Herman Ritterboss writes in writing this parable, the kingdom's beginning may seem small and insignificant. We must not be mistaken about it, but remember the mustard seed. One day the kingdom of heaven will surpass the kingdoms of earth in glory. And that kingdom is still growing, it's still advancing. It has not arrived in full, but this kingdom will not be cut down. Its branches will not be lopped off. Its beasts, its birds do not need to scatter from seeking shelter and food underneath it. They can stay there forever. And it will be witnessed by all and enjoyed by those who in faith are resting and trusting in its king. So again, when it comes to now the, the application of the second part of the parable, on the one hand, applying it is pretty straightforward and simple. It is for us at large as a church to pray what we prayed earlier alongside of our Savior. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It is to ask to see the blessings of the kingdom tasted in part now, expected in full, but that it would come more and more each day. That we would experience the blessings, that all would see the greatness and run to it. And included then would be our role in being that salt of the earth, that city on a hill, where people living in darkness see the greatness, not of us, but in the kingdom that we're resting in. And the incredible blessing that is found and is offered by the members of it. The application is us living in and anticipating the reality that an extraordinary end is coming for citizens of this kingdom. We profess part of that extraordinary end earlier when we talked about that inheritance that is unfading, imperishable, undefiled, waiting for us, kept for us, guarded for us by God himself. And this is the hope of the kingdom that is already here, but also not yet here. And this is a hope that we all need to hear. And sadly, it's a hope that isn't told as much as it should be by the citizens of that kingdom. And additionally then for us as individuals, the application is again to pray alongside of our Savior. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We should long to see the kingdom, long to taste and enjoy its blessings, even as we wait the fullness of them. And we should also hear in this parable a gentle, merciful and gracious rebuke and encouragement from our Savior. What kingdom are you and I seeking the blessing of? Which kingdom's greatness are you trusting today? 
Because it is far too tempting for us to trust in the kingdoms of men. They're more tangible. We can see them. We can see their glory. We can see their greatness. They appeal to our flesh. They promise immediate food, immediate shelter. And we can easily trade in the glory of those kingdoms for the glory of the great and true kingdom that will last forever. But we must be reminded, even in this parable, that each and every earthly kingdom will fail. Its end is in subjection to the great king and his kingdom. The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, whose reign shall be forever and ever. So in addition to praying for his kingdom come, let us also be seeking to take shelter in this kingdom now. To trust in this kingdom. Not who's in office today or who's in office tomorrow. Not in the kingdoms of this world. But to wait as citizens of that heavenly kingdom. Now, enjoying the blessings now, even as we await its fullness that is yet to come. I must confess now at this point that I'm not the biggest fan of Clifford the Big Red Dog. Yet nothing against the author or that lovable pooch. But I simply find the stories to be a little bit lacking. There's not really much there, except for maybe the very first one. But I will admit that the physical growth of that particular, even though he's a fictional dog, is impressive, even if altogether impossible. If I had half of that ability to grow, I would be the one playing tomorrow night in Louisiana, or I would have been the one playing because now I'm too old and slow. But brothers and sisters, the growth and the greatness of the kingdom of heaven is far better than any story of fiction. Whether a silly story like a small dog who grows up to be a 25-foot pooch, or a more grand fictional story, I'll throw in my usual Lord of the Rings, starts off with the small hobbits, and we know what they do, I'll leave it there. But the growth of the kingdom and its final end is greater than any story of fiction, because it's a story of fact, it's a story of truth. It started seemingly small and insignificant when our Savior walked in, his, in our flesh and proclaimed its arrival. And I'm not going to lie, humanly speaking, it seemed altogether finished when he went to the cross and died that horrific death. But as we know and as we're going to celebrate, well, as we celebrate every Sabbath day, but we're going to celebrate even more so in two Sabbaths, we know that it ends in his victorious resurrection, his glorious ascension, and the anticipation of his return. So every Lord's Day is a day that we come to proclaim the reality that the kingdom is here, is it, it is advancing, and our glorious king is coming. He's coming in power. He's coming in glory. He's bringing the full blessing that is a promise to all who find refuge in his kingdom. And so then as we consider, as we think about, as we meditate on its simple start, while looking to and tasting now its extraordinary end, we can only wonder and marvel how great and awesome is our God that his kingdom would start in this way and it's going to end in the fashion it's going to end. The kingdom's initial weakness will yield undeniable greatness. Let us pray. Father God, we give you thanks. You are the only one who can do this. Take something as small and insignificant as a mustard seed, your kingdom, Plant it and see it become this tree 
this kingdom that will consume the entire earth and fill it with blessing. And God, we long for that day. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done. But until that day, would you give us eyes of faith to see it's coming, to enjoy the blessings of its arrival here and now, even though it's not in full, even as we come to the table in a moment, to get a taste of, a glimpse of, the blessing of finding shelter and nourishment in your kingdom. And would you make us then faithful citizens of it to proclaim its coming, to encourage our friends, our neighbors, and all we meet to seek shelter and rest in Jesus Christ, the King. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would, please take your bulletin and let us stand and sing our hymn as we prepare to come and take the ta- uh, come to the table. My worth is not in what I own. <laughs>